0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Every few years, a criminal trial captures the public's attention. These trials are usually called the trial of the century, even though they seem to happen about once every five years. And though they're sensational for a while, they're pretty quickly forgotten afterwards. But today as we continue in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see a trial far more important than any trial of the century. We're going to see the most important trial in the history of the world, which is every bit as significant today as it was 2,000 years ago, because today we're going to look at the two trials recorded in Matthew of Jesus. Unjust trials in which the Son of God is sentenced to death. A trial that really reveals the guilt of those who accuse Jesus and hand Him over to die. That's really what these trials reveal. But even more than that, today we're going to see that the trial of Jesus is really the trial of humanity. It is the trial of me and you. And it reveals the comprehensiveness of our guilt before God. And that's what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. 27 Verse 26. And today we're going to see six points. I know it's a long text. I think we're going to get through it all today. Six points. For the sake of time, I'm not going to list them all up front, but I will be really clear about when we're going through them. Let's start with our first point, which is that humanity is guilty because we intentionally commit evil. It's the last few hours of Jesus' earthly life. An armed mob has taken him from Gethsemane, and all the disciples have fled. Jesus is now in his enemy's hands. What will they do with him? Matthew chapter 26, verse 57 says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now during his final week, Jesus has been persecuted by the Sanhedrin the highest-ranking council within Judaism. And now the Sanhedrin gathers at the residence of the high priest, and that's where Jesus is taken. Now, they're not the only ones who go there. Peter also follows along at a distance. We'll say more about him in a bit. But let's first see what happens to Jesus. Now, the Sanhedrin was not a political body as much as it was a court. And in that capacity, it now puts Jesus on trial But while this court purports to dispense justice, it acts unjustly. And we know that because from our available sources, the Sanhedrin said itself that it was not supposed to hold capital trials at night or on a holiday. And capital trials were supposed to last a minimum of two days to prevent a rush to judgment. But all these rules are now set aside as Jesus is subjected to an illegal nighttime trial, not at the temple, but in a private household. At night during the Passover. So what happens? Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Liars, hoping to please the Sanhedrin, came to perjure themselves against Jesus. But their lies were not enough to allow Jesus to be condemned. Because Deuteronomy 19 required the agreement of two witnesses in a capital case. And Mark 14 says that these liars' testimonies did not agree. But eventually, verse 60, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, Jesus had said something similar to this early in his ministry. John 2.21 tells us that Jesus' comment was not about the temple building. It was about his own body. But these false witnesses garbled Jesus' quote and present it in a false light, making it sound like Jesus has threatened to destroy the Jerusalem temple. Now that excites the Sanhedrin. Here's a possible charge. Because desecrating a temple was a death penalty offense under both Jewish and Roman law. Verse 62, so the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The Sanhedrin's playing a wicked game. There is a form of a trial going on. But there's not going to be any fairness here. Uh, Jesus had seen what the Sanhedrin was about. Back in the great debate in chapter 22. When over and over again they tried to stumble him with tricky questions. There's no sincerity among these guys. This is a rigged trial guaranteeing his death. And Jesus isn't going to participate in this mockery of justice. He doesn't respond to them. Because explaining himself isn't going to make any difference in front of this court. Because he's already accepted that he must die. It's the will of the Father. And also it was prophesied in Isaiah 53.7 that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. So Jesus stands silent in his own defense. But this all the more inflames Caiaphas, who now tries to compel Jesus to reply. Verse 63 And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. There were some man made traditions in Judaism at this time that I could compel you to take an oath if I said the right words, and you had to give me a truthful answer. That's what the high priest is trying to do here, to force Jesus under oath. But we saw last week that throughout the passion, Jesus embodies his own teaching. And in Matthew 5, 36, he said, Do not take an oath. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Jesus does not here swear the oath that is put upon him. Instead, he just tells the truth in the simplest way possible. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now, this is the second time Jesus uses this brief expression on his final day. It's a way of giving a minimal answer to someone who really doesn't deserve more. But yes, Jesus affirms he is the Messiah. And having said so, now he speaks some truth to this false court. Verse 64, he says, But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus now points to two really important passages from the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah not just as a future human king of Israel, but as a figure who has a unique, equal relationship to God himself. Psalm 110 verse 1 speaks of the Messiah as one who sits as God's equal, wielding God's own power. And Daniel 7, 13 and 14 speak of the Messiah as the Son of Man, a human who receives an unending global kingdom, who rides on the clouds. And that's language that we see throughout the Old Testament that always describes God alone. So Jesus here doesn't just say he's the Messiah. He says that these passages that allude to the full deity of the Messiah speak of him. That he is God in the flesh who will reign forever and ever. And Jesus says to the Sanhedrin, one day you're going to see me coming on the clouds. Those who judge him now in injustice will one day stand before him and receive true justice. That is a fearsome threat. And it inflames Caiaphas. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. The tearing of clothes in the Old Testament denotes sorrow. And here Caiaphas melodramatically tears his clothes, pretending like he cares about God's honor and pretending like Jesus has just offended God. But if Caiaphas really cared about God's honor, he would have obeyed God's word, which said in Leviticus 21.10, The priest who is chief shall not tear his clothes. He is a hypocrite. And this hypocrite now further blasphemously charges Jesus with blasphemy. He never stops to consider that maybe Jesus' claim is true. But there was so much evidence to suggest it was. Because throughout this book, we've seen Jesus perform the miracles the Old Testament said the Messiah would perform. And we've seen Jesus do things the Old Testament says only God can do. Creating, walking on water, stilling the storm, raising the dead. And beyond all of that, we see Jesus' theological knowledge and wisdom throughout this book. He has given so much evidence that he is the Messiah. But Caiaphas has closed his mind to the possibility that his enemy really comes from God. And so has the rest of the court. So Caiaphas asks in verse 66, What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And now we see just how unjust this court is as they abuse their prisoner. What hate they have for him as they spit on him. They insinuate he's a false prophet, hitting him and saying, who, who hits you? They're, they're presupposing he doesn't know because they, they're claiming he's a false prophet. And all the while, he kept silent. They thought he was silent because he didn't know the answer. Because they thought he was false, that he wasn't who he said he was. But he did know because he is who he claimed to be. And therefore, he submitted to this beating because Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, what do we see here? The very worst of human sin. Cruelty, violence, hate, this wicked scheme. This is profound, intentional evil. And it should disgust us. And yet, friends, I have to tell you that in truth, we are not so very different from the wicked men we see here. Because while we may not have participated in this evil trial against God's Son, we too have done evil things. Maybe we've not murdered, but in Matthew 5, Jesus says, having hate in our heart is like committing murder in our heart. Friends, have you ever acted out of hatred against an enemy or sought vengeance against somebody who wronged you or said, ha, 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 when God brought your adversary down? It's the same kind of wicked thing. Or maybe for you, the parallel in this scene is not the Sanhedrin's hatred, but it's their envy. Have you coveted what isn't yours? Perhaps the applause of other people or their skills or their position. What have you coveted? Have you taken that which you coveted? Have you taken someone else's spouse or desired to? Have you taken someone else's possessions or money? Have you desired to? Maybe out of envy, you verbally smashed somebody just to make yourself feel good. Or maybe the parallel in your passage, or in this passage to your life is that you've lied. You're, you have a facility with lying to get ahead in life or to bring somebody you don't like down. Whatever it is, friends, we have all committed intentional evil. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. We deserve death and hell because we've done intentional sin. But we come now to our second point, which is that humanity is guilty because we deny Christ out of misguided self-preservation. Peter's come to the high priest's courtyard. Verse 58 says he's come to see the end. He finally accepts that Jesus is going to die, and he wants to see it. But he wants to see it from a distance. He doesn't want to get involved because he may then die. He's afraid. He wants to clutch his life. He has forgotten Jesus' words in chapter 16. Whoever would, lose his, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so here's what happens. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. We don't know how she recognizes Peter, but she does. But verse 70, he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Peter says he doesn't know Jesus. And with terror now growing in his heart that he's being recognized, he begins backing away from the courtyard, heading back towards the gate. Verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, we don't know how she recognized him, but Peter had to be getting really scared now, and so he doubles down on his denial. He doesn't just deny it, but look what he does. Verse 72. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Unlike Jesus, who refused to take an oath and simply told the truth, Peter disobeys Jesus by telling a lie and confirming it with a false oath. Now, Peter's deception seems to calm the courtyard situation down a bit. But verse 73 says, After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them. For your accent betrays you. They had been listening to Peter talk. And he had a Galilean accent. And what would a Galilean be doing here this time of night unless he had some connection to Jesus? So again, Peter is identified. But look at verse 74. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. He denies Jesus again. And basically what he says here is, if I'm lying, let me be damned. His fear is carrying him into worse and worse sins of the tongue. He's forgotten, Matthew 12, 36, that on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. But Peter didn't have to wait till judgment day to reckon with his sin. Look at verse 74. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, it's bad enough that Peter denies Jesus here, not just once, but three times. Because earlier in this book, in chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Friends, our profession of faith is not something that we can discard whenever it's convenient. Denying Jesus is something that characterizes those who go into eternal judgment. But not only has Peter denied Jesus three times here, but he does so after earlier in the evening proclaiming that he didn't believe Jesus' prophecy that he would prove disloyal. He said, though all the other disciples fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And yet as the rooster crows, Peter denies Christ the third time. And Luke tells us, at that moment, from across the courtyard, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And in that moment, all the fear and commotion of this night that had clouded Peter's mind is stripped away, and he sees what he's done, and he is crushed with guilt. He had come to see the end, but instead he leaves sobbing. He also now deserts Jesus. Now I want you to see two things here. First... While the Sanhedrin mocks Jesus as a false prophet, Peter's denial reminds us that actually Jesus knows all. He is who he claims to be. His prophecy of Peter's failure comes true to the letter. But second, we see here another aspect of human guilt. Guilt I think we can probably all relate to. Guilt that's born out of fear. Peter denied Christ because he was afraid he was going to die. And it's easy for us to look down on Peter for that. But I would submit that that probably each of us has at times denied Christ in some way, and we've done it under far less pressure than Peter was under here. Not out of a fear of death, but just because we didn't want to offend people. Now maybe you say, hey, I've never denied Jesus. Let's test that. Most obviously, I would ask, have you ever been asked if you were a Christian and denied it even though you professed to know Jesus? Or... Have you ever shied away when somebody asked, do you really believe about marriage only being between a man and a woman? Do you really believe people are going to go to hell for all eternity? Controversial doctrines. Are you embarrassed to talk about those in front of people that ask you? Have you ever joined in ungodly things with your friends or laughed at evil jokes with your coworkers to signal to them that you're just like them when in truth you know you aren't because you've been redeemed by Christ? That is an implicit denial of your faith and its obligations. I've done that. Have you professed to know God but denied Him by the way you're living in front of the watching world, living contrary to the gospel? Or even simply, have you ever just failed to speak up about Jesus to somebody that you know needed to hear the gospel because you were afraid? You were afraid it was going to hurt your relationship with them. You were afraid how it was going to reflect on your reputation. Friends, I think all of us have functionally denied Jesus out of fear at some point in our lives. Fear of losing a relationship, fear of losing a job, fear of losing our reputation. Because as Jesus warned against in chapter 6, we've all chosen at some point to serve some master other than Jesus, like money. Or in chapter 10, we've loved someone more than him, and we thought somehow out of that love we should not obey our obligation to evangelize. Friends, we are called to courageously stand by Jesus, and yet don't we fail to do that consistently before men all the time. Friends, we're guilty. Come now to our third point. Humanity's guilty because we flee from our sin into acts of self-destruction. Chapter 27, now verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. The Sanhedrin has condemned Jesus to death, but in the first century, the Jews were not a politically free people. They were under Roman occupation. So the Sanhedrin could not lawfully kill its condemned prisoners. They have to persuade the Romans to kill Jesus, and now the Sanhedrin plans how to persuade them to do that. And having done so, they send Jesus to the governor. But as this occurs, one witness is terribly grieved. Look at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas now realizes what he's done. He has been complicit in the murder of Jesus, and we're told that he changed his mind. Now, some people see in this phrase true repentance. We're going to discuss whether that's the case or not in a minute. But first, let's see what Judas does. In a desire to be free from his guilt, he tries to give back the money that he had been paid to the Sanhedrin. And he confesses his sin to them. He has been an accomplice to murder. But look what they say in verse 4. He said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. They're not interested in helping Judas deal with his sin because they're false religious leaders. They were happy to use Judas, but they don't care about helping him. And they have even less interest in examining themselves because the sin that Judas has confessed is their sin too. They set up the murder. He now grieves. But they heartlessly tell Judas to get lost. Verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. I'm going to come back to this verse in a minute. But Judas doesn't want to hold on to the money, so he throws it at them in the temple and leaves. Verse 6. Catch this. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Now talk about hypocrisy. They take the money and they say, we can't commingle this with the temple treasury because Deuteronomy twenty-three, nineteen said, the financial proceeds of sin cannot be given to the Lord. And now the priests apply that logic to this money. They say, well, this is blood money. This is money used to procure a murder. But wait, if this money's been tainted by sin, whose sin tainted it? They paid that money to Judas to set Jesus up. But they're spiritually blind. we have seen before how they tithed their garden herbs, thinking God would applaud their diligence while ignoring the weightier matters of the law. And now they're worried about fiscal policy in the treasury while failing to come to grips with the fact that they have arranged the death of the Son of God. So what happens? Verse 7. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So the priests used the blood money to buy this field, which will be used as a cemetery for immigrants in the future. And in all of this, Matthew sees a fulfillment of some more material from the Old Testament. Of course, that's the great theme of this book. And he sees here two prophecies that are being fulfilled. In Zechariah 11, the prophet is insulted by Israel's false religious leaders. They pay him this pittance, this 30 pieces of silver, to show their contempt for him. And Zechariah says in Zechariah 11:4, I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. A scene that prophesies Judas' action here. Similarly, in Jeremiah 19, the prophet smashes pottery in a field as a symbol of judgment on Jerusalem. And Matthew puts these prophecies together and sees in them a foreshadowing of this entire scene. And the point is, this scene testifies to the truth, just like in the Old Old Testament scenes, that God is displeased with the leaders of Israel and judgment is again going to fall on Jerusalem, this time because they've murdered Jesus. But what of Judas? He changed his mind. Did he repent? Was Judas saved in the end? Years later, the Apostle Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a grief over our sin that is good and godly, which drives us on our knees before God, confessing our sin and receiving His mercy, that produces real repentance. But not every grief over sin is repentance. Sometimes there's only a self-centered pity party regretting the consequences of our sin, but not the offense against God. And while Paul says godly grief results in the repentance that characterizes salvation, this selfish, worldly grief leads only to death. Now, which grief did Judas have? What did his grief produce? We'll look back at verse 5. And he went and hanged himself. It produced death. It drove him to suicide. That's not repentance. That's worldly grief. Now, what do we need to learn here? People often engage in self-destructive behaviors to avoid dealing with our sin in a godly way. At some point in most of our lives, I would guess most of us have probably sought refuge from guilt in self-harm, in sexual immorality, in drunkenness, in illicit drug use, in binge eating, giving us pain or pleasure signals to distract from our conscience that actually damages our bodies. Perhaps we've even considered doing what Judas does here, suicide. Now often today, when Bible-believing Christians talk about suicide, the first thing we say is that we deny the traditional Catholic doctrine that suicide is unforgivable. And that's because the Bible doesn't say that suicide is unforgivable. But when you look at the Bible, you will discover that everybody who commits suicide in it is either God's enemy or, in the case of Samson alone, a believer who is experiencing terrible judgment because of his sinful choices. Friends, there are no positive examples of suicide in the Bible. Suicide in the Bible typically characterizes those who are lost. So believing friends, I want to say to you, suicide is never an answer for us. No matter how hard or painful life may be, suicide is not the way out. Friend, if you are feeling heavy sins weighing on you, let that lead you to the foot of the cross to beg God for mercy because there is pardon because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is full pardon and grace available. There is mercy even for the worst sins like Paul who did murder or Peter who denied Christ. Friends, if they can be saved, you or I could be saved for whatever things we've done in this life. But friend, I plead with you, do not harm yourself because suicide is a grievous sin. It is the murder of oneself. And we should remember the warning of 1 John 3.15. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So while Judas had regret, we must conclude his regret was not repentance. Instead, Peter says in Acts one twenty five, Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That is, Judas went somewhere else from where the rest of the disciples are going. He went to hell. And so Jesus' prophecy about him came true. Woe to that man! by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it would have been better for him if he had never been born. And so friends, what I want us to see here is that fleeing from a guilty conscience towards self-destructive behaviors is terrible in God's sight. It is not good, it is not spiritually healthy. It only compounds our guilt before him. And friends, the extent to which we have abused our bodies in the hope of finding relief that can only come from the cross is the extent to which we are guilty in this area. We come now to our fourth point, which is that humanity is guilty because out of cowardice we sin by omission. Jesus is now brought to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, the Roman governor. Pilate has the power to sentence people to death. And so now the Sanhedrin tries to convince him to kill Jesus. Jesus. Luke 23.2 says, They began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They paint Jesus as a traitor. Initially, they lie, saying Jesus was against paying taxes to Caesar. But in Matthew 22, Jesus told the Jews to pay their taxes, saying, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But more than that, the Sanhedrin says that because Jesus claims to be the Messiah, he is setting himself up as a rival king to Caesar. The Sanhedrin is trying to play on concerns that Pilate might have as a governor to maintain peace and to collect taxes and to preserve the power of Rome to try to get him to condemn Jesus. But Pilate wants to hear what Jesus has to say in his own defense. Matthew summarizes their famous conversation that is recorded in John's Gospel like this. Look at verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. For the last time now, Jesus uses this minimalist way of signaling his agreement to a question. Now, you might think this would be the end of the matter. If Pilate says, Are you a king? And Jesus says, Yes, sounds like Pilate might order his death, right? But that's not what happens. Because Jesus' reserved answer And other comments that Jesus made to Pilate, which Matthew is not recorded, but which John did, like when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, suggest to Pilate that the Sanhedrin's charge is false. Moreover, if Jesus is some dangerous revolutionary, where is his band of followers? Where are evidence of his crimes? Pilate was used to seeing violent criminals in front of him. Jesus doesn't look like one of them, and yet the Sanhedrin is vehemently accusing him. And as Pilate watches this, he's astonished by Jesus' response. Look at verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. We might expect an innocent man would vigorously defend himself. But Jesus mounts no defense, because he needs no defense. Because Jesus is trusting his future to a higher, better court. First Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is trusting the Father with all of this. But the whole scene confuses Pilate. And he really doesn't want to get involved. And we're told why not, beginning in verse 18. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Pilate doesn't like the Sanhedrin. He doesn't trust them. And he can tell the Sanhedrin's charge here is motivated by envy. And friends, we've seen what they have to be envious in this book. They can't out-debate Jesus, so they envy him. They can't work the wonders he works, so they envy him. They don't have the real relationship with God he has, so they envy him. Jesus has an authenticity that they lack, and he has exposed that. And so they want him dead to preserve their authority and power. But Pilate really doesn't want to be involved in that. Moreover, look at verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. As Pilate's hearing the case, he gets this odd message from his wife, urging him to stay out of this matter because of some dream she had. So Pilate tries to steer clear of this, but he doesn't steer clear of it by extricating Jesus from their wicked grip. Instead, he comes up with a scheme, how to avoid taking responsibility in this situation. And as a result, he shows himself to be a coward, and he sins by omission, not by an overt act, but by a failure to act. Because what is God's intent for government? Romans 13 says it is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. But Pilate won't stop the evil in front of him. He won't release Jesus. He's trapped because of the politics of his situation. If he lets him go, he's going to inflame the Jewish religious leaders, and he doesn't want that headache. One innocent life isn't worth it to him. Now, Pilate's calculation is obscene. But again, friends, I think if we're honest, we can see some of Pilate in ourselves. We may resist having difficult conversations with people because we don't like the discomfort that they generate. We may avoid making painful choices that we alone have the responsibility to make because we fear that they will prove unpopular to those around us. We may fail to step in when we see evil things happening around us, bullying at school or at work or sometimes in the church. We may sit silently as great evils occur in our society. The murder of the unborn, the redefinition of sexuality and gender, or shocking public acts of official or police misconduct. Friends, it's so easy not to act. But if we are God's people, should we not have some holy boldness to speak what is true even if it's unpopular? Should we not stand up for what is right even if it costs us something at home? At work, at school, in public, are you tolerating evils that you really ought to speak about? Am I? Are our consciences burdened by what we're seeing? Don't be like Pilate, sinning by omission out of cowardice. Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Friends, we need to do what Jesus would do. We need to speak God's truth with courage and trust the outcome to him. But because we at times fail to do this, we're guilty. We come now to our fifth point. Humanity's guilty because we're so easily manipulated into unthinking evil. Pilate thinks he's found a way out of his troubles, a way to avoid having to decide this case. He's going to turn the decision over to somebody else, to the mob. Look at verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now at this very early hour in Jerusalem, a crowd is gathered from the streets. And Pilate gives them a choice. He's going to give them one of two prisoners. Option one is Jesus. Option two is Barabbas. Now Mark and Luke tell us Barabbas was a murderer And an insurrectionist. He was a violent revolutionary. Add to this the fact that the name Barabbas in Aramaic means son of the father and we may legitimately wonder if Barabbas is the sort of figure that the Sanhedrin is accusing Jesus of being, a false messiah using murder to advance revolution. Now add to this that there is a very interesting textual variant in some manuscripts of Matthew 27 that gives Barabbas' name as Jesus Barabbas. Isn't that interesting? This violent revolutionary's name may well have been, or his, his you know, war name, Jesus the Son of the Father. So who will the crowd choose? The false Jesus the Son of the Father? A murdering revolutionary? Or Jesus of Nazareth, the true eternal Son of the Father? Well, we might hope the crowd will choose the real Jesus, After all, there have been times in this book when Jesus was popular with the crowds. And just a few days earlier, remember some pilgrims from Galilee had acclaimed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as Jesus entered the city. But Jesus is not popular with this crowd. This crowd doesn't seem to have any Galilean pilgrims in it. Probably because the pilgrims had just observed the Passover. They're not out early in the morning hanging around Pilate's palace, but people from Jerusalem would be. And in chapter 21, we read that the people in Jerusalem did not have any enthusiasm when Jesus entered the city. In fact, in chapter 23, Jesus said the people of Jerusalem had resisted his efforts to gather them as a hen gathers her brood under her wings because they were not willing. This is not a friendly crowd. And on top of that, the crowd is now manipulated. Look at verse 20. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, And destroy Jesus. I think this manipulation would have been pretty easy. I bet they said something like this. Pilate the Roman wants to protect Jesus of Nazareth. Send the Romans a message. Reject his preferred option. Maybe many in the crowd were sympathetic to Barabbas. He had done what they had dreamed of doing. He killed some Romans, you know. And it probably wouldn't be hard to convince them that Jesus was an imposter. How could the Messiah wind up in custody before the Romans? Surely he would have powers to deliver from them, right? And so verse 20, the governor said again to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas! The crowd chooses the false Jesus over the real Jesus, just like they still do today, just like in our society. We prefer advertisements and and nonsense in the media about a false, wrath-free, no-judgment Jesus who endlessly approves of us over the real Jesus of the Bible who preached, repent, and believe the gospel, who warned about hell more than anybody else in the Scriptures. So Pilate's plan has backfired. The crowd chose Barabbas. So once more, Pilate abrogates his leadership and defers to what has now become a mob. Verse 22. This crowd, once manipulated, does what many crowds do. It degenerates into a violent, unthinking mob. And now Pilate has created the very sort of danger he wanted to avoid. And so to avoid further trouble, he gives in to them. He's not going to administer justice. Jesus must die. But first he washes his hands in a public signal that says, I'm not responsible for this. Now this was not a Roman custom. This is a custom from Deuteronomy 21 in which leaders say, I'm not responsible for a dead body in my jurisdiction. The fact Pilate does this is perhaps an insult to those that are around him, an insult to the Sanhedrin. But his gesture is worthless because Pilate's responsible even if he doesn't want to be, because he doesn't use his power to do justice, and that makes him guilty. But for their part, the mob was happy to absolve Pilate Because they were willing to own responsibility for Jesus' death. Look at verse 25. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And in so doing, they called down God's judgment on themselves. A judgment Jesus warned them about in chapters 21 through 25. Because as they secured Jesus' death, they guarantee that Jerusalem will be destroyed in one of the worst acts of carnage in world history. Now, what should we take from this point? We see yet another dimension of guilt in this section as people are reduced into an unthinking, violent mob. Friends, we are so easily manipulated by external forces. In our natural condition, Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You know, sometimes we sin because of internal forces, because our flesh craves what looks good and what feels good. But sometimes we sin because we are manipulated by the world system. Because the culture around us speaks. And it tells us things, it propagates ideas that are generally accepted by unbelievers around us. And we are pressured to adopt its way of thinking and to conform to its lies. You know, as God's people were urged in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But friends, how easy is it for us to just go with the spirit of the age, to just accept the world's false view of tolerance and think that it's wrong to talk about sin or to even disagree with somebody? How we unthinkingly adopt the world's materialistic priorities, how we unthinkingly adopt the world's views about gender and marriage and sexuality, How we unthinkingly begin to call the world's evil good and God's good evil. To unthinkingly reject the Jesus of the Bible for a Jesus who suits our culture's tastes. You know, many professing Christians are so easily dominated by what their favorite celebrities or even Christian celebrities tell them. We forget the standard is God's word. Not what is popular or sympathetic among the unbelievers around us. And friends, when we allow the world to shape our thinking, we're not just manipulated by the world. We are manipulated by the intelligence who stands behind the world, which is Satan. And friends, we must resist his malign influence. But how often do we wind up thinking like unbelievers and acting like unbelievers, prioritizing the empty things of this world, money and property and leisure over things that really matter? How often do we begin to believe lies and give our consent to what God really hates? And friends, when we do this, we also are guilty in God's sight. But we come now to our last point with which we'll conclude, which is that humanity is guilty because we are responsible for the death of Jesus. A moment ago, I read you verse 25, which is really controversial. Not because it's hard to understand But because at various points in Christian history, verse 25 was used as an excuse to persecute Jewish people in the name of Jesus. And that's a blasphemous, wicked thing to do. Because racism is satanic and evil. And engaging in violence is the opposite of the ethic that we see Jesus demonstrating in this passage. But because verse 25 has been twisted in these sinful ways in the past, many people today try to avoid its plain meaning. That this Jewish mob actually claimed responsibility for the death of Jesus and fell under God's judgment. Instead, many people today try to argue that Pilate and the Romans alone are culpable for Jesus' death because they say, well, they're they're the ones that had the power to kill. And so blame Pilate, don't blame the Sanhedrin or the mob. But I think Matthew in our passage has shown us there's plenty of responsibility to go around for the death of Jesus. To be sure, Pilate was responsible. Although he washes his hands of the matter, look at verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, but now sends him to torture and death. Pilate's guilty, which is why the earliest Christian confessions of faith say Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, because his name should forever live in infamy. But Pilate wasn't alone in his guilt. The Sanhedrin paid Judas. They staged a sham trial. They accused Jesus to Pilate. They stirred up the mob to demand Jesus' death. That's not anti Semitic to say, that's factual. Likewise, those in the mob demanded Jesus' crucifixion and became so bloodthirsty that they openly claimed responsibility and called down God's judgment on themselves. They too are guilty. But friends, at the end of the day, while Pilate and the Romans and the Sanhedrin and the mob are all guilty, the truth is they're not alone. Because ultimately, the most important reason why Jesus went to the cross was because of us. And Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to this earth to die, to give his life as a ransom for other people. Why? Why? In Matthew 26:28, he says, His blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus dies to forgive sins. And friends, this is the most important reason why Jesus died. Not simply because some Romans or the Jews made uniquely evil decisions about Jesus that nobody else ever would have made. No, friends, any culture and any country in their shoes would have done the same evil things. If we were standing there, we would have done the same evil things. And if you deny that, I would remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew 23, 30, where he denounces those who say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And Jesus says, thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. If we think it would have been any different for us, we are kidding ourselves. Because, friends, ultimately the truest reason why Jesus died is Romans 5, 8. That God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the end, Jesus died because we're guilty. I mean, that's what we said over and over this morning, right? We are all guilty of terrible sin, each of us. And friends, that's in the end why Jesus was on the cross. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And while the death of Jesus is a horror beyond our imagination, the truth is that through it, God gives us the greatest news and hope imaginable. This is how God can promise in Isaiah 43, I will not remember your sins. Or Psalm one hundred three twelve, 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How much evil can Jesus forgive? Well, consider Peter. Peter denied Jesus. And Jesus had said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. So do do we think Peter was, was eternally damned because of his sin? No. Yes, Peter's sin was terrible. Yes, he was right to grieve it, but it wasn't unpardonable because Jesus eventually restored him. In John 21, Jesus said to him before the other disciples three times, just like the three denials. He said to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter was forced to publicly say, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And in the end, he was restored. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. What about the other disciples? They deserted Jesus in Gethsemane. Was this sin the final word in their lives? Are they all lost? No, Jesus said in chapter 26, verse 32, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. All of the 11 would be restored to Jesus' service after the resurrection. Because even though they sinned, Friends, there is abundant mercy for every person who turns from our sin towards faith in Christ. And friends, even us, as guilty as we are, as many terrible things as we have done, even despite the worst sins in our lives, God says if we come in repentant faith towards Jesus, He will pardon us. He will give us His Spirit. He will adopt us into His family. He will enable us to serve Him, and He will dwell alongside us forever in the bliss of the new creation. There is glory and joy and hope because of Jesus. And so my question to us as we conclude today, friends, is this. What will we do with our guilt? Will we be like the Sanhedrin or Pilate and remain oblivious or unconcerned about it? Will we, like Judas, try to destroy ourselves because we don't know how to deal with our sin? Or will our sin drive us to the foot of the cross, confessing our sins to the Lord and pleading for mercy? That's what the disciples did here. Yes, friends, they all fail. But what happens after they come to their senses? You know, by Easter morning, they're all gathered together again. Because when they came to their senses, they realized that they'd blown it, and their real allegiance was towards Jesus, and that drew them back together towards God. And friends, though we have all done evil things of commission and omission, we too can find forgiveness in the death of Christ. Today, if you have never come to Christ, I, I pray that you would turn from your life of, of sin and, and put your trust in Jesus, who is God and man, who died for you and who has risen from the dead. And if you do that, you will find mercy. But today, if you do know Christ, I pray that you would once more look to the cross, that you would claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that we would learn to hate and forsake the sin that put Jesus on the cross. Second Timothy 2.19 says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So today, may we love Jesus. May we find pardon in his death. May we find newness of life in him to love him and loyally serve him in the way that he is.